0: How are we doing, church? Doing okay? Good. You look great. You look great. Glad you're here. Uh, if you got your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Pastor Britt's going to tell you where you're going to go in just a little while. Or you can grab your bulletin, and the text is there also, in case we've never met. I'm Joby Martin, the lead pastor here, and um, I hope you're doing great. I really am. I, I've had a great week. This last week I was on an extended prayer walk in Colorado, um, kind of an armed prayer walk. Uh, you'll hear lots about that in future sermons to come. But uh, this morning, we're going to put a pause in what we've been doing for the last three weeks. We've been in a series called Sovereign Legacy, where we we looked at um, the life and faith of Abraham and Sarah. We looked at the faith of Abraham, and we looked about uh, what do you do when God's timing and your timing don't really line up. And then last week, we looked at Abraham and Isaac, and that that God's not a God trying to take from you what's most important to you. But in fact, Abraham and Isaac is a picture of God in his love giving to us what was most important to him, his only begotten son who died on a cross for our behalf. This week, um, I'll tell you about that in just a second. Next week, we'll pick back up with three more weeks of Sovereign Legacy. Uh, We will talk about um, uh, Jacob and Esau and Joseph. We'll talk about forgiveness and temptation and, and all kind of stuff as we follow through in this study on Genesis. But today, I'm really excited because I think it's very, very important for our church to hear the gospel from some different voices. And about seven months ago did one of the smartest things I've ever done in leadership is, is hire Pastor Ryan Britt. Uh, he's from Atlanta. He came here to be our spiritual formation pastor. And if you're in spiritual formation, if you're in a disciple group or a disciple group leader, maybe you've had some experience with him. He's an incredible leader. He's a really, really smart guy. Um, and And... In addition to that, he's an incredible communicator of the Word. So I'm excited about not only what you'll hear today, but who you will hear it from. And so since Pastor Britt has come on staff with us, um, we've added about 75 disciple groups. We've doubled our attendance in disciple groups. We are a church that exists um, not to just make converts, but to make disciple-making disciple and Pastor Britt's role here at Eleven Twenty Two has been a big part of us making huge strides forward uh, in the past seven months, and so we're re- really excited about what he's doing there. But you, you, I heard the sermon at nine o'clock, so you got to trust me on this. You are going to be blessed to be receiving the Word of God from Pastor Ryan Britt this morning. So, would you please give a big old Eleven Twenty Two welcome to my good friend, Pastor Ryan Britt? All right.
1: Good morning. Hey everybody, Uh, I'm Pastor Ryan Britt, as Pastor Joby said, so glad to be here with you this morning to be able to open God's Word, talk a little bit about what God's done in my life, some things He's brought me through and and some things that He's challenged me in. And and I just want to say before I, I dive in that, man, it is really an honor to serve here at 1122. God is just doing something uniquely special in our church and in our community, and it's really it's really an amazing privilege for me to be able to partner with Pastor Joby, and Pastor Ryan, and Pastor Ben, and our staff, and be under the leadership of our elders that are just incredible men of God that are leading this movement. And so, if you've just been checking us out, or just hanging around for a few weeks, I just want to say to you, this is a special place. And if you hang around long enough, eventually it'll stick on you. So, I, I'm... Uh, I'm really hopeful that you do. As honored as I am to be here and to serve here as a pastor, my life's greatest honor is to be the husband to Jennifer, my wife of eight years, and to be the father of Anna Catherine, who is four, and Abigail, who is one. Abigail, uh, my smallest, she just started walking on Thursday, and so we're kind of in that cool, like, one-year stage, and um, Abigail's blonde hair and these diamond blue eyes, and Anna Catherine is, is long brown hair, I mean she came out of the womb with like inch and a half long dark brown eyelashes and really thick eyebrows and they're both just incredibly beautiful girls and I'm very blessed to be their dad. Anna Catherine and I are really close friends, we spend a lot of time together, I'm really familiar with her, she's not old enough nor has enough daddy issues to really oppress emotion, repress emotions yet. Um, I'm hoping I can hold out, but you know, we'll see. But she, so she just kind of wears her heart on her sleeve. She just, uh, what's the best way to say it? She's uh, she's female, and, and so she kind of does, she kind of does her thing. And and uh, recently, as she turned four, we had to take her to the doctor to get shots, and we knew she was nervous because about the time you know a month out from the doctor, she decided that she wanted to start expressing how worried she was, and so. As a dad, you know, I'm not the most perceptive, perceptive but I kind of keyed in like, okay, she's concerned about this. So what we'll do is I'll be there, and I'll just help encourage her and support her. And so we knew that something was, gonna, something was up, and so because I'm familiar with her, I just said, you know what? Daddy will be there, and if Daddy's there, we'll no problems, right? Well, comes time for the doctor. We go in. We do our thing. She's nervous, but she's being pretty cool about it, and the doctor comes in. The doctor, who will remain nameless, goes here. Um, c- comes in and checks Anna Catherine out and then she the doctor leaves and the nurse comes in to give her her boosters now I know there's a lot of people who have a lot of opinion on about should you inoculate your children and give them boosters and all that stuff and the people who don't normally try to use science as the excuse as to why they don't give their children boosters I'm not judging you but I know the truth now It's not like it's got nothing to do with science. You just don't want to have to live through your four year old getting shots. Right? So I'm in the room with Anna Catherine, and the nurse walks in with the needles. And my beautiful, sweet, brown eyed baby girl, who is the best big sister, just caring and loving and articulate, she turned into a Tasmanian devil. She's spinning around the room, arms are flailing. She's kicking, and bot. I mean, she's 32 pounds, and she was just putting a 300-pound ninja whip on everybody, and all I could think is dad was, grab her, right? And so I just grab her, and I hold her as tight as I can, and i got my arms around her back, and I'm holding her arms across her body, and she's just like this, is, I mean, I'm just a straight jacket, you know? She's just wiggling, and I'm holding her as tight as I can, and the nurse Gets real close with the needle. And as soon as the first needle goes in, Anna Catherine goes quiet. There's no screaming, no tears for like a second. And next thing I know, she bit me. Right there. Bit me. Just, I mean, just like a pit bull, man. Right on me and and through the biting i still hear these sounds and it was kind of like a a, a foghorn and a pig being electrocuted like i like it was the craziest thing i've ever heard and it's and in there somewhere was words and all i could think was my daughter is cursing me like not like real profanity but like just four-year-old curses that she's just laying on her dad, you know? And as I, as we finally get it all settled and I leave that experience and I'm going to get in my truck, I put her in the car with her mother and I'm like, y'all are on your own, you know? And I didn't but I did, she gets in the car and she's okay and she's headed home and I get in the truck and I call my counselor and I'm like, look, PTSD, bro, I got to come talk to you right now. But I didn't do that, but I sat down and I just had a, that parent moment. That moment where you're like, I have no idea what I've done to myself. You know, if you're a parent and you're raising kids, you're like, I did this to me. I chose this. This was a, a, an outcome that I wanted. You know, when my wife and I were family planning, nobody told me that my daughter was going to ninja chop bite me in the doctor's office. That was not... And, and, and the, really, the mistake was my fault. The mistake was me. I was very, I thought I was familiar with what Anna Catherine would do. I mean, I knew something was up, right? But I drastically underestimated what was actually going to happen. And I think that happens to me a lot of times in a lot of different areas of life that, that I'll have a foregone conclusion in my mind of the way something should behave or the way an interaction or experience should go. And then I get completely blindsided by it in the moment because I just got a little too close that I didn't really prepare myself for what was going to happen. And I think that happens with us in church sometimes. I think that happens with us in the Bible or us and people from the Bible that we can just grow familiar with their names. We can grow familiar with the scriptures or familiar with our interactions together and we can really lose the weight and the significance of what's being said and what God has for us. And so today my, my goal is to open our, our Bibles to a pretty familiar passage. But I'm hoping that the significance of it does not get lost in the familiarity of the names. You probably have heard these names before if you've been around church and you've experienced any telling or any version of the passion story, the, last, the account of the last few hours of Jesus' life. Um, But I I pray that as we study our scriptures today, that God would speak to us on a level that's new, beyond the level that we're familiar with it. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Mark chapter 15. In Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 1, like Pastor Joby said, it's also in your bulletin, uh, or it's going to be on the screens. You can follow along. Mark chapter 15, verse 1. As soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes, And the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away, and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered and said, It is as you say, or you have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, Pilate used to release for the people one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered Jesus up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd So that Pilate would release for them Barabbas instead of Jesus. And Pilate again said to them, What shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. What we have here in Mark chapter 15 is the most significant chapter in all of human history. These events that are playing out are the most important, most defining moments in human history, in my history, in your history, in all of human history. These, these events were the point that our lives, our existence, our recorded history hinge on the things that are transpiring here in Mark Chapter 15 and beyond. And, and what we have going on here is a couple of different things. We have three people that the scriptures really focus in on Pilate, Barabbas, and Jesus. And Jesus is being handed over to Roman authority by his people. Jesus' people, the Jews, who had been in relationship to Jesus for quite some time. They didn't just meet Jesus five minutes ago and not like him and then want to have him killed. They'd known him for a while, and their 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 hatred and their bitterness toward Christ had just been growing and growing and growing, and now they had an opportunity to hand him over to Rome to have him executed. Now, the Jews could not execute anybody for religious or for political re- reasons because of Roman law. The Romans would not execute anybody because of uh, religious reasons, only political ones. And so... Jesus' accusers had to make Jesus look as though he were a terrorist trying to overthrow Roman rule by setting up a new kingdom. All that to say, there's a lot of manipulation and coercing going on here in the Scriptures by Jesus' accusers. There's a lot of things happening here that are just on, on a lot of levels super shady. And the Scripture tells us that Pilate sees it. He sees that something here is not right, that these people are envious of Jesus, and so they're trying to to get what they want by by inaccurately portraying this picture of Christ. Pilate is an interesting study. Pilate standing there, and this dialogue that he has with Jesus is fascinating. It's always fascinated me. I've I've been around this passage of Scripture for well over a decade, and The thing that always jumps out at me is the words in verse 5 where it says, Pilate was amazed at Jesus' lack of response. The accusations against Jesus are mounting. The attacks are growing. and, And Pilate standing there, having ruled over many, many, many trials, Rome was no small thing. It's hard for us to imagine the power of Rome when we read the New Testament. But Rome... Uh, expand, expanded over a million kilometers, and they ruled for over 1,500 years. It was an empire. It wasn't like the United States is a country where we've been hanging around for a couple of hundred years and we stretch across a few thousand miles. They were massive, and their power was, was full, and it was strong. And they, they executed people all the time. So this was nothing new for them. Pilate had been in many, many courtrooms and he's standing there watching Jesus' accusers go after Jesus and he is amazed at what Jesus doesn't do. He's amazed that Jesus doesn't defend himself. And I just want to say, I absolutely love that Jesus does not defend himself when people come after him in this text. Do you know why? Because it's so opposite what I would do. I mean, I can see this play out in my life on the simplest of levels. When my wife accuses me, hey baby, I'd appreciate it if you didn't leave your shoes in the living room. You know what I do? I defend myself. I concoct something that preserves me. Right? A lot of my decisions in life, especially when conflict arises, are made in the interest of self-preservation. And Jesus is showing us right here That that's not how we have to act. That we don't have to control, we don't have to self-preserve, we don't have to defend ourselves. That there is something bigger at work defending us. There's something bigger on an eternal scale that is happening in our defense. And that thing that Jesus is showing us here, do you know why Jesus is so confident that he doesn't have to defend himself? It's because he is absolutely confident in God's sovereign plan. See, Jesus was there before he ever put human skin on. He was there with the Father when he and the Father penned the plan. When they wrote it, Jesus was there. Fast forward through eternity to this moment where Jesus is in the moment and he's being accused. He doesn't rise up and fight back. He says, this is the plan. He is completely supernaturally confident in God's plan. And do you know what? You and me today, we can have the same supernatural confidence that God has a plan. He has a plan. It's not a natural confidence. You can't muster it on your own. It can only be inherited and birthed in us through faith. But we can be confident that God has a plan. There is a sovereign God with a sovereign plan. That's good news, and I can tell you, like Pilate, I've been in a similar situation in my life, where I just step back and I go, I just am a little amazed at what God is doing or what God seemingly isn't doing. I've got a lot of examples, but this amazement for Pilate is not like when my daughter comes into our living room and does a front row, like a flip, I go, oh, and Catherine, that's amazing, good job, two thumbs up. She's like, oh, thanks, Dad, Right? That's not what pilots doing. Pilots more like that confused amazement, like, like how I feel when I see that uh, Will Muschamp still has a job, right? That's just a little confusing for me. Like as a Georgia fan, I love it. Go dogs! glory, glory to old Georgia. I love it. You know, he, he graduated from Georgia. We ingrained him early to come down to Gainesville to ruin the University of Florida football program, right? It's in God's sovereign plan, right? But that's, that's how Pilate is. Like, as a human with a brain, it's just hard to reason that he has a job. And Pilate's going, look, I just don't understand. Jesus, why are you not defending yourself? Have you ever been there? Have you ever wondered why Jesus was not doing what you wanted him to? I have. I have. I've never been there in a more real way than when I was 12 years old. When I was 12 years old, I was at a friend's house, and we were playing Sonic the Hedgehog on Sega Genesis. That's right. Some of y'all are post-30 years old. Well done. I didn't grow up killing deer, you know, or stuff the Manly pastors did. I played video games. And, um, you know, it is what it is. Judge me if you want. But I was sitting there playing video games, and then there was a knock on a door. At my friend's house, and my aunt and uncle showed up. And... They said, hey, it's time to go. We have to, we got to take you home. And it was way before the scheduled time that I was supposed to go. So I get in the car. We drive back to our house. It's a pretty quiet car ride. We pull up into my driveway, and there's a few cars from different family friends. And I walk inside, and I knew something was up. And I sat down next to my older brother. And I began to listen to my dad tell me and my brother that my mother had been diagnosed with cancer. And at 12 years old, confusion set in immediately. So for the next couple of years, we prayed and prayed, we begged God, we believed God, we thought that God was going to work this out for our good based on our definition of what we think is good. My dad's a pastor, the godliest man I've ever known. I would walk through the hallways past his office in the morning, and my father would literally be laying on the floor, crying, weeping, begging God to heal my mother. We would hold hands as a family, and we would pray and say, God, we believe. We believe that you're going to do a miracle here. So for two years, we believed together. We prayed and we expected January 1996, my brother wakes me up in the morning and says, Hey, my 16 year old brother wakes up his 14 year old brother and says, Hey, mom died just a few minutes ago. In that moment, I was confused. I was absolutely confused. I had a lot of questions. I was, I was, backwards in in my own mind right but one one thing that i've learned being 18 19 years removed from that i still see through a glass dimly it doesn't the whole picture doesn't make sense to me but ha- having time passed i do see that god in his sovereignty absolutely had a plan for our pain and suffering it's a hard pill to swallow, but I've seen it in my own life. I've seen that God has a plan, and when I think about God's plan, there's really two, there's two ways that I see people thinking about God's plan. I've thought about it two ways. One way, the right way, the biblically accurate way to think about God's sovereign plan is that God has a plan and that my life revolves around that plan. There is a plan, and my life revolves around it. There's another way that we think about it that is popular but not right, which is that God has a plan that revolves around my life. Those are separate systems of belief. The first is that God is the center of God's plan. The second is that I am the main story. I am the main character in In all things, and so I would be at the center of the plan. And if I'm at the center of the plan, then who's really God? That's a really significant reality for us to wrestle through in our faith. Through my mother's suffering and eventual passing, I saw, I've seen God's plan. I've seen it. I I saw it before I moved down here. I I was teaching at a pastor's conference in rural Kenya. And it came time for question and answer. And nobody was really talking. And I had been teaching for like eight hours. Like, you know you're you know, you, you're a really terrible teacher when you can go for eight hours and not one person has a question. Like, at least ask me to stop. You know? and Not, not one question. And I'm like, oh, Lord, like language gap or, you know, definitely not me. This language has to be the problem. They're just not talking. And eventually, the... One of the, uh, I asked them, what do you s- struggle with as pastors? An American pastor asking rural African pastors, what do you struggle with? That's a really dumb question, but I asked it, and this is what they said eventually. Eventually, I got them to say this back to me. They said, listen, as pastors here in rural Africa, we struggle every day, all day. We suffer every day. All day. That is the only struggle we face. And you Americans, you know nothing of suffering. Based on their perception, I had nothing to offer them because I don't know how to suffer. And in that moment, it hit me like lightning. It was like God punched me in the heart. I saw the the, the time from, from watching my mother get sick, fight, and die, to that moment, I saw... That God had a plan. I was able to tell these pastors what it was like to be a, a 13 year old, 14 year old who watched his mother drop from 120 pounds to 88, to watch her lose the ability to speak and eventually the ability to move. I can still tell you today what the men were wearing when they carried my mother's dead body out the front door of my house that she died in. I sat there in a chair just like I stand here today, and it was, it was like lightning that God said, Son, I have a plan. For your pain, I'm not saying that that's the reason my mother died, but I'm saying she died. And there's a reality that comes with that, which is that God has a plan for our pain and our suffering. Do you know that God has a plan for the promises of your success as much as he does for the pain of your suffering? Whether it's in the mountain highs of being super successful, God has a plan. When it's in the valley lows of pain and suffering, God has a plan. And we have the opportunity to center our lives around God's plan. I've seen God use that story for His fame and His glory at the center of His plan. It's amazing to see what God can do when you have the confidence that He has a plan. When my family moved here to Jacksonville, the only way I can really explain us coming down here was that one day I was driving down the road and I got this itch, like, over here in, like, the love tank area, you know? Like, it just started itching, and the itch was called 1122. Like, I just couldn't scratch it one day. And so I reach out to Pastor Stone, and, and he and Pastor Joby and I have been friends for a long time, and I'm just more or less saying, hey, what's God doing down there? I'd like to hear more. I was in an incredibly blessed situation on the north side of Atlanta, where I was at a a really healthy church, one of the best churches in the country, under some really incredible leaders. God was doing an amazing thing. Uh, It was one of the largest churches in the nation. and, And I had a really unique seat that I was able to travel all over the world and see God work miracles and see his sweeping movements as he did his thing all over the world. He let me see it. And so I began to tell people, like, I think God might be changing my role in his story, he may be asking me to, to switch gears a little bit as I revolve my life around his plan. And, and everybody started asking all these really hard questions like, bro, that just doesn't make sense. Seemingly, what you're talking about doesn't make sense professionally. And my wife, who's a saint, but I go home and I'm like, hey, baby. Uh, Think about this place, you know, Jacksonville. There, there's a beach. Right? Like They got the ocean. You like sun? And she's like, hey, I have a newborn. We had a newborn that was like five minutes old. And on top of that newborn, my, the last six months of my life had been really complicated from a health perspective. I mean, uh, right before I, I came down here, as we were talking through me coming down here, like way down the line, I was on this uh, trip to Mozambique when I was trekking through the jungles of Mozambique, and I'd get bit by a tick in my ear. And that tick gives me this thing called African tick fever. And I I get super sick. Like, fever's like 106 degrees, and I'm shaking like crazy. And I'm in and out of the hospital, and I I literally think I'm going to die. My wife thinks I'm going to die, and she's got a newborn. And, man, it was messed up. This tick bites me, and I'm like, my life is just jacked up. Go on a mission trip. My life is just jacked up. (laughs) And and, and things are just, uh, (laughs) sorry. And, um... But and right before that, I had been in the hospital two different times for serious heart complications from a wisdom teeth surgery that just went way bad. And now I'm telling my wife, hey, we're gonna pack it all up again. This is our seventh house in seven years. We're gonna pack it all up and we're gonna move on down to Jacksonville because Joby called. <laughs> right? No, man. Life's happening. Life happens, right? The pressure rises. What do you do when life happens? What do you press into? What do you press into when the situation's difficult? Do you lean into confusion? Do you go into this downward spiral of the chaos of habitual living? Do you try to gain control? And begin to manipulate? Do you become paralyzed by your fear of what you can't control? What do you press into when life happens? Jesus is showing us right here in Mark 15 that that as the pressure mounts, we can press in as a people into God's sovereign plan. He's a good God with a sovereign plan. In this story, there's a man named Barabbas in this scripture. Now, Barabbas is a really interesting case study. Barabbas, in the account of Matthew, Barabbas is known as someone who's notorious. He committed murder. Barabbas is literally in prison for the the crimes that Jesus is being accused of. So, Barabbas had led a revolt against Rome, trying to overthrow Roman rule. Romans squashed it. And they threw him in jail, and Barabbas is in prison waiting for death because of the crimes he committed. So he is justly in prison, and he is justly condemned, just sitting there waiting. So I think about Barabbas sitting in this dark Roman prison cell. I've never been in a Roman prison. I've never been in any prison. But my guess is, in a Roman prison, it's not awesome. Right? Right? So Barabbas is sitting there in the dark. He's full of fear. You know he's full of regret because any of us who live in isolation for any amount of time, if you're in isolation for any amount of time, regret sets in. It doesn't matter how tough you are how mean you are, how many tattoos you got. Left to yourself long enough, regret will find you. Barabbas is sitting there full of regret, full of fear, awaiting death. And then all of a sudden, One day the door to the prison opens, and the light breaks through. Brabus is kind of confused, and he's thinking, oh, somebody's coming down here to give me a beating or something. And then the prison guard grabs the keys off his belt, opens Brabus' cell, walks in, puts the keys in Brabus' cuffs around his ankles and around his wrists, and he says, guess what, Brabus, today's your lucky day. You get to go free. You're free, man. Go free. Now, I've always wondered what Barabbas did in this text. I've always wondered what he said. Scripture gives us no indication of his response. But here's what I know. I know what Barabbas didn't do. Do you think Barabbas was like, no, I'm really digging these chains. I love it here. I think I'm just going to stay here in prison. Do you think he started to negotiate terms like, okay, okay, I'll go free, but I'd also like a million dollars. No way, man. He gone. That guy was out of there. He was busting out of there as fast as he could. When you get set free from prison, you don't hang around to see what happens next. I learned this in a quick story I'm going to share with you. My father was here Thursday night. Uh, when, I, when I was teaching the 722 service, and when I wrote the sermon, and I realized he was going to be in the room, something hit me. It hit, it hit me that uh, even he had not previously known the truest version of the story. So I confessed sins to my father in a room of a thousand people on Thursday. That was cool. I'm 15 years old. And it's Friday afternoon, which means it's football time, and I played on the football team. And uh, I know you can tell. And um, I played on the football team, and I forgot—I grabbed the wrong jersey when I left the house that afternoon, and so I was panicking. Like my coaches are going to kill me. I walk out of school. I see a friend of mine, and he's standing there, and he'd been 16 for about 10 days. And I'm like, hey, bro, I need to go home, and can you drive me home to grab my jersey? And he's like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's fine. And so we start walking toward his car, and I was like, oh, yeah, man, you don't even know where I live, really. Just let me drive. He was like, yeah, I don't know. I was like, Oh, right, it'll be fine, no problem. Just let me drive. He's like, okay, fine. So we jump in his 1988 Chevy Corsica, and we're cruising down the road, and sure enough, we get behind the school bus. And I'm not, I'm not known for my patience, And and so I knew that if I went, there's a road that cut off to the right. If I go this way, it usually takes a little bit longer, but I don't have to wait on the school bus. And the reason this way takes longer is because half of it's a dirt road. And when you're 15 years old, you don't get in the car to learn how to drive with your dad and go, hey, dad, can we go drive 65 miles an hour on a dirt road? You just don't do that. And so I previously had no experience going 65 miles an hour on a dirt road. Until we were traveling down and we hit that road at 60, a dirt road at 65 miles an hour. Do you know how long we stayed on four tires at 65 miles an hour in a dirt road in a front wheel drive Chevy Corsica? About five seconds. About five seconds, and the car literally goes up in the air, flips over on its roof, and slides down the road into a ditch upside down. I lived, I'm here to tell the story. Me and my buddy somehow miraculously or not anything but just scraped up, you know. And we kick the door out and we're walking. This is pre-cell phone days. So we had to walk to somebody's house to, to call. And I'm thinking, my dad's going to kill me. And then he says out loud, bro, I really think my dad's going to kill me. And he's like, I, he's like my dad is going to kill me that I let you drive my car. And I'm thinking, I know my dad's going to kill me that I was driving your car. And then he said this. He said, maybe we should tell him that I was driving. you right. Ding, <laughs> ding, 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 ding. I mean, it's just going off in my head like the most beautiful of bells. You're so right. We should tell him that you were driving. This is not my fault. I was in the passenger seat. I, you did this. I absolutely let that brother take all the rap for the whole thing. I did. And the first time I confessed it was like Thursday. That's pastoral confession. I had forgotten about it. I repressed it in my emotional bank. And I'm just telling you, look, this this is what Barabbas is doing. He's not negotiating terms saying, hey, I want to hang out and you want to take my place. Done. It is done. It's really not that far-fetched of a scenario if we get really honest on a heart level here. If we're anybody in this story, we are Barabbas. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, the Apostle Paul says, All have sinned and fall short of God's glory or standard. He goes on to say that we have all been led astray, that we are all in open rebellion against God. You don't have to hang around 1122 very long to hear the words black-hearted sinner. You don't have to hang around here very long to hear us say that we are, by nature, humanity is rebelling against a holy God. That everything about us says we want to be God, and God says I'm the only one, and we are fighting back. And because of this reality that is called sin, we were born into an emotional and a spiritual prison. And that spiritual prison creates a reality for us This penalty is death, is what Scripture says. That we will not just die physically, but we will die for eternity separated from God. And just like Barabbas, we are trapped in that prison. Not by happenstance, but because it is a prison that we justly deserve for crimes we absolutely committed. And the keys are being put in the cuffs, and they have been put in the cuffs, and the door has been open. And just like God positioned Jesus on a cosmic scale in every way, God chose Jesus to go to be punished for Barabbas's sin and for Barabbas to go free. And it's the same for you, and it's the same for me. God, on an infinite scale, chose Jesus to take our place and to get and to bear all the deserved punishment for all the Ryans, for all the Jobys, for all the Yews, for all of us. That God chose Jesus to wear our punishment and to absorb it so that we could be free. So that we could be free. I often sit back and scratch my head when I meet with people and I say, Do you know that you're free? I mean, you're free. Why are you hanging around prison? You're free. This freedom comes to us in three parts, on three different levels. I want you to hang with me here. This is really important. It's because it's one thing to say you're free, and then you go and live and not feel free. Today, we can realize the depth of the freedom that is provided and paid for us by Jesus. So in in my sense, I am free. By God's grace, through faith in Jesus, I am free from the penalty of sin forever. I'm free. I am free. By God's grace, through faith in Jesus, I am being freed from the progress of sin in my own life. And this is what that means. That means that you don't have to be addicted to sin. That you don't have to be full of insecurity and fear. That you're free. Jesus paid for it. This means that sin's progress in your life, that it has no grip on you. Jesus says you're free. The sin does not have to progressively grow in your life. That holiness now, because of Jesus, can progressively increase and sin can significantly decrease. You're free from the progress of sin. You don't Have to sit at the computer and be addicted to porn. Just because your daddy was an alcoholic doesn't mean you have to. Jesus says you're free. You're free. So I am free. I am being freed. And praise God, one day I will be free from the presence of sin. I am free from the penalty of sin. I am being freed from the progress of sin. And one day, by God's grace, I will be free of the presence of sin. That's true for you too. Jesus says you're free. He paid for it. He climbed in your prison. He absorbed your death so that you could be free. Are we living free today? This freedom was, came at the highest of price cost was more than any of us could bear. And that leads us to Jesus. And I just want to close our time today. And I want to encourage you. By just helping elevate for us today our view of the beauty of Jesus. One of the most important questions I've ever considered is this. Do I primarily see Jesus as helpful or beautiful? Primarily as a follower of Christ, do I see Jesus' primary function being that of someone who is helpful, like a friend, or being beautiful, like a king? Because he's both. But every day I choose to surrender my life and my thoughts, and I, I try to place Christ I, I, my life revolves around this, this beautiful this beautiful Christ. And so I want to take a second for us. And I just want to remind us of who Jesus is. When Jesus is standing in a Roman court and he says, and Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Every Jew in the room, all the chief priests, they hear Jesus being asked, are you God? Are you God? Because... For the Jews, for thousands of years, across hundreds of pages of recorded history, there had been these whispers and this echo through eternity of this promised redeemer. Of this one who would come and put God's people back together. This one who would come and restore God's people to the rightful throne that they believed is theirs. Scripture had been screaming about this Messiah, this king, this coming one. For a long, long time. And so when, when they are saying, you, do you think you're the king? And Jesus says, I am. He is saying, I am the solution to all of God's people's problems. On an eternal scale. I'm the one. That's why they killed him. Because they didn't believe him. He's right in front of them. They're surrounded with the implications of Jesus' existence. And they're missing out entirely on the person, on who Jesus actually is. I fear for us in our culture today that that happens a lot. We wear crosses and we have Christian updates that fill our Twitter feeds. Our Facebook is full of Jesus this and Jesus that. We can even go down the road and buy some fried chicken Jesus, right? And so there's nothing wrong with it. That's all good and that's all fine. But Jesus' accusers show us that it is very easy. To have the implications of Christ's existence all around us and miss out on who he really is. So I just want to walk through some of these whispers and some of these images that have been, that were uttered through history, through the Bible, the Old Testament, about who Jesus is. Jesus not only came and fulfilled these statements, he is the embodiment of of everything that was ever claimed to be about the One. So in the Old Testament, we see Jesus in a few different places. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, he is the firstborn of all creation. In Genesis chapter 3, he is the Messiah born of a woman who will crush the enemy's head. In Genesis chapter 5, he is our passage into heaven, he is our ascension with complete victory. Over life and death. In Genesis chapter 12. He is Abraham's seed. He is the blessing. By which all nations will ever be blessed. In Genesis 14. He is the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Which is the the highest. the The purest line of priests. In Genesis 17. He is the eternal covenant of God. He is the promise for God's people. In Genesis 22. He is the promised lamb. Whose life will be taken. In Genesis 26. He is the seed of Isaac. He is the promised redeemer, the one who can redeem just in his nature. In Genesis 42, he is the only one that complete obedience is due. In Exodus 3, he is the burning bush and he screams at Moses and says, "I am the great I am." In Exodus chapter 12, he is the perfect spotless lamb. He has no blemish. He has he never makes a mistake in Exodus fifteen. His character is holiness. He doesn't just act holy; he actually is holiness. In Exodus 30, thirty-three, he is the merciful one. He in Leviticus fourteen, he cleans the dirty. He's the only thing that can make dirty things clean for all of eternity. In Leviticus sixteen, and this is my favorite, he is the death of death. He is the death of all deaths. Do you know that as God's people, we never die? We only pass from life to life with nothing in between. He is the death of death. In Leviticus 17, his blood is the only thing necessary for, to establish righteousness with God. In Numbers 21, he is the serpent on a pole lifted high in the wilderness that is the only hope for, in, for all nations. In Deuteronomy, he is the greater Moses. Moses exists To show us Jesus. In Deuteronomy 21, he is a savior who will hang on a tree. In Ruth 4, he is the Christ, our kinsman. He is our brethren who adopts us into the family. In Psalm chapter 2, he alone can have the title king. In Psalm 16, he will rise from the dead. In Psalm 22, he will rise from the dead after dying of a broken heart. In Psalm 23, he is a good shepherd that takes care of the sheep in psalm 24 his name is exalted above all names his name is the most beautiful the most powerful the most glorious it stands alone above above every name that could ever be uttered in psalm 27 he will be falsely accused while standing on trial in psalm 34 not a bone would be broken in psalm 35 he will be hated without cause in psalm 45 he alone is god there is only one and it is him This is good news, my friends. This is good news. In Psalm 69, he will be smitten. He will be beaten for his children. In Isaiah 8, he is Emmanuel, God with us. He is with us. In Isaiah 9, he is a wonderful counselor. He is the mighty God that will establish an everlasting, a forever kingdom that will have no end. In Isaiah 11, his character is truth. You can only know truth through him. He is the only truth. In Isaiah 35, He will come and save us. In Isaiah 45, He is the judge of all created things. In Isaiah 49, He is the only thing that can heal us on an eternal scale. In Isaiah 52 and 53, He will be abused. He will be shockingly abused and beaten. The stripes on His back guarantee our healing. By His wounds, we will be healed. And in Isaiah 61, he's the only one who could set us free from the penalty, from the progress, and from the pain and the presence of sin. He's the only one. So today I ask you this. Have you surrendered your life to him? When we say, when we pray, dear Jesus, That's who we're talking about. When we say, dear Jesus, help me. That's who we're talking to. When we ask questions to the sky and we say, why Jesus? That's who holds the answer. He's the one. When my mom died and my heart was full of chaos and confusion, I asked the same questions that that are being asked of Jesus in Mark 15. I said, are you the one? Are you the one who can put me back together? Are you the one that can take all this guilt and all this pain? Are you the one who can heal? Are you the one who can forgive? Are you the one that has a plan that I can trust in? Are you the one? And just like he said to me, and just like he said in that courtroom, and just like he's saying to you, if you're asking those questions, are you the one? Jesus is saying, I am him. I am Jesus is more than a friend that you go to in times of trouble. He's not just the the great bank in the sky that we make deposits and withdrawals from when we need them. He's not a mechanic waiting on you to bring your car to get it fixed. He's more than that. Is Jesus a helpful friend? Yeah. But would you ever surrender your life to a friend? Would you? Would you take all of your money and take all of your dreams? take all of your sins and all of your guilt and all of the weight of you, would you take it to a friend and say, here it is? And believe that they could do anything with it. You wouldn't do it. We can only fully realize Jesus as our friend when we realize Him as our Lord. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So have you surrendered your life to Him? Are you following Him? When I walk through the Old Testament, do you feel the weight of Him? Those, those fulfillments that Jesus had should be like water on the desert of our souls. I mean, it should be rest for us in our over-exhausted world to hear about the beauty and the sovereignty and the goodness of Jesus. He is better than anything this world can offer he's better than anything we can muster with our own hands he is better he doesn't just go to make a place for us that's better Jesus goes into eternity and because he's there eternity is better do you know that Jesus is the point of heaven right you don't go to heaven and then think it's going to be all great the point of going to heaven is because Jesus is there he makes it better right Jesus doesn't just give us a better life He breathes life into us so that we can fully live. On every level, He's better. So I'd encourage you today to examine your heart. Are you following Jesus? Because He is better. Have you surrendered your life to the King of kings and the Lord of lords that delivers on His promises in every way? If you're here today and you say, Man, I'm really not. I want to surrender my life to Jesus. I want to follow that Jesus. I want to be a part of that beauty and that plan. Then I'd encourage you to do that. It's really not all that difficult. I've said it a few times. By God's grace, through faith in Jesus, we follow Him. When we acknowledge Jesus as Lord, we realize that following Christ is not a sacrifice that we make, but it is a gift that God gives us. God gives us the gift to follow Him. Today you want to accept that gift and you want to surrender your life. I'd encourage you to do that. It's really simple. You just, in your chair, in your way, you say, God, I'm in. I got a lot of problems that I think you can fix. I got a lot of sins that I know you're the only one who can forgive. But I want to follow you. I want to follow you. If you do that in your own way, in your chair, you just check a box on the respond cards in front of you. You put those in the box, you take them to Connect Center, and we'll follow up with you. There's another group of people here today that would say, yeah, I'm in, I'm in, but i got some serious stuff. I've been doubting God's plan. I've been missing out on the beauty of Christ. And I want to encourage you to respond by coming to the altar. Spending some time with your your family or with your loved ones, just here alone, however you do it. Thanking a beautiful Christ who has a beautiful plan that we can revolve our lives around.
0: So however you would
1: respond, we would ask you to do that today. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for every opportunity that we have to be a part of what you're doing in creation, to be a part of what you're doing here in our city. Thank you, Jesus, for coming and being the fulfillment of all things, for you being the promised one, the redeemer, for you being the eternal lamb, for you being the 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 spotless lamb, the king who will establish a forever kingdom that has no end. Thank you that you are all those things and you joyfully adopt us into it. So I pray that as we surrender our hearts and our lives, God, that we would feel the weight of who you are and the beauty of Christ here in this place today. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's respond together in worship.